Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, welcome back to uh, the COVID season of uh, How to Pakistan. As we had promised, uh, both myself and uh, our delightful co-host, Fasi Zaka, uh, intend on doing this much more regularly. We think it's a scary time, a time of great anxiety. Uh, if, uh, if you can handle the anxiety, uh, it is absolutely the right thing for you to feel, I think. Uh, if you can't, then you have to find mechanisms of coping. We are probably not the right mechanism to cope uh, <laughs> because, uh, <laughs> because especially today, I suspect that we're going to say and we're going to hear a few things that are going to uh, only cause more anxiety. Uh, but it is a serious topic. Uh, it deserves serious treatment. And so we thought rather than just me and Fussy, we'd actually bring in someone who really, really knows what they're talking about. Uh, I have known uh, Harun Sharif for uh, almost two decades. He has been uh, an active, proactive member of the economic policy-making uh, circles of the country uh, for the better part of that entire period. Uh, we have worked together. I think of him as an elder brother and, and a mentor. So uh, it's especially delightful for me to welcome him. I know that Fussy is also very happy to welcome you, uh, Harun Saab. Uh, maybe Fussy with some opening words from you. And since I'm the spin bowler here, why don't you uh, open the attack and, uh, and take over? Well, first off, welcome uh, Harun Saab. It's an honor to have you here. And I thought we'd just open up with a very broad question. One is that given the stimulus and some of the measures Pakistan's taking on the economic front, where do you think it is just the right prescription and where do you think it falls short? Thank you very much, Musharraf Sadi and Fasi Zaka. It's an honor to be joining the elite company. Uh, my, my take basically on the stimulus packages uh, that, you know, so far it is more of a signal that the government is communicated, communicating that they are A, serious, B, they are, you know, uh, collecting uh, some resources which can be given uh, to the business and economic activity. Uh, where the things are moving is actually cash transfers. And that is uh, the right thing to do under the uh, difficult testing times. Insofar as the economic stimulus is concerned, we need to first understand uh, that in terms of priorities, uh, uh, economic team should be looking at what? I think the number one priority at the moment is you need to uh, preserve the jobs of the people. And for that, the kind of incentives, particularly yesterday, what State Bank offered, that you know, uh, there will be reduced markup on debt and other incentives. It is a signal, but I don't think that will give comfort given the size of uncertainty, uh, given the size of fear of unknown, uh, it might not really you know, incentivize people to hold on to the jobs uh, because if you look at, I looked at UN report recently, 80% of enterprises are closed across the globe. So the magnitude is huge. And that's where I genuinely think, uh, then you take the construction industry. Construction industry basically contributes 2.7% uh, to the GDP of Pakistan. Uh, 
uh, as compared and the job creation is double the amount because more people work here so let's say if pakistan has 5 million you know employed people it will have let's say around 4 to 5 million out of that look sorry 0.4 to 0.5 million now, where are the real jobs are in the services sector the shopping malls the gas stations the uh, shops the you know restaurants the hotels the banks the hospitals and that is where i think people are looking towards a serious package so that you can actually take care of them 42% of our jobs are still in the agriculture sector so i think they need to look at the potential of sectors and vulnerability of jobs uh, construction has lower vulnerability as compared to people who work in seasonal crops agriculture sector so i think a little bit of rebalancing will help uh, secondly uh, it has to be uh, given uh, to the people uh, who can deal with businesses i don't see a public private partnership so far maybe it's too early but in such a situation when the government is totally stretched uh, they need to like for instance these days who wouldn't like to volunteer so they need to bring in as many people who can volunteer and help them structure these deals that's how i look at the package but the uncertainty is so huge that you cannot be definite that what can be offered we are getting into a prolonged recession uh, that's my take so harun uh, sahab if if you allow me i think we we jumped right in uh, pretty heavy and i i i thought maybe there should be at least a little bit of build up <laughs> and uh, and we can't call this sweet talk but a little bit of maybe sour talk you know i i wonder if if everybody that's listening uh, and and even amongst the three of us whether we have really gotten our heads in our hands around exactly what is about to happen uh or has already happened and what let's say the next 3 years look like uh for the economy and and i ask that question specifically because i have one very um central sort of uh, thesis that that i want to test with you uh and maybe i'll come to that shortly but but i think before we get into the specifics what what is your sense of what the economy is going to look like over the next say 6 months 12 months and 18 months musharraf basically it's very hard to predict but now in pakistan a number of assessments uh, have emerged some based and decent particularly done by led by dr nadimul haq in pai afis pasha has done it others have done it so what i see is at the moment you know a minimum in the short run a minimum 1% decline in the positive scenario in our gdp so that means you go bit around 1% growth level so that what what does it mean so that has an impact on unemployment Uh, that has an impact on our you know uh, revenue collection possibilities uh, that has an impact on the overall you know trade and commerce uh, but the more difficult impact actually is the uncertainty of the uh, unknown businesses you know capital is the most covered thing in the world at this point in time nobody will deploy capital people will go into a savings mode because they would like to save for the future when they save to the future 
there will be no foreign direct investment anyway, so domestic investment is going to shrink further. That's what I see 20, as a matter of fact. Uh, uh, God forbids if it exponentially you know, uh, increases, then scenarios will change. But on the current pace, this is what I see, uh, that Pakistan will have more poverty, Pakistan will have you know, more uh, joblessness, and Pakistan will have a decline in our revenue situation at this point in time. I'm less worried about the external side. I just listened to Prime Minister's message. I think in terms of debt relief, we can you know, discuss in further length. But I doubt it that Pakistan actually would be a priority for a debt relief. A, our external debt is much lower than the domestic debt and much cheaper. B, already we have fixed the current account and oil prices. So foreign exchange part, the only pressure I see is a decline in remittances. So that's what 2020 looks like. 2021, I like to predict because it's very hard to predict. So uh, I think first, we're getting a little bit of uh, disturbance on your connection. I don't know if Fussy is also getting that. Fussy? Yeah, I picked it up in between. There yeah. is- I mean, it's, it's fine. Uh, exactly. Fasi, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Fasi Zaka was singing the praises of Zoom. Uh, I was, of course, defending the homeland. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Zoom has behaved exactly in the way that Skype does. And FYI, we're recording this, uh, this session on, uh, on Zoom rather than on Skype. But uh, look, I want to sort of get into the external bit a little further because I think you're absolutely right. I think remittances are going to fall hard. I also think that we're looking at a potential redefinition of our relationship with, uh, especially with uh, the UAE. Uh, already there's quite a bit of uh, rhetoric coming out of the UAE, uh, both on India and on Pakistan because of the peculiar nature of the size of those diaspora communities and what they represent and how difficult it's going to be for them to remain fully employed. Um, so there's definitely a remittances hit that's coming. But I think the more uh, profound challenge in the medium term, which is anything over 12 months, at least for me, uh, is, the, is the idea that exports are the solution to Pakistan's uh, economic woes. Uh, now, you and I, of course, have discussed this, so there's a little bit of, maybe it's a little bit unfair, but, but just for the, for the listener's benefit, there is a school of thought, which I think is not emergent enough, has not been articulate or loud enough, uh, but that, you know, has quite a few adherents, and I think I would at least partly count myself among those. Uh, and I suspect, Harun Saab, that maybe, you know, maybe partly you would too, that actually the solution to Pakistan's long-standing economic goals is not, in fact, uh, manufacturing and exports of manufactured goods. It's actually something else. Now, what that is, I will let you explain in, in your view. But what this COVID situation means, if we look at U.S. contraction and we look at European contraction and we look at where the bulk of Pakistan's exports go and what kinds of dollars and euros we get for them, I think that the whole issue of exports is about to go out the window. So with, with limited exports and no growth prospects for exports, with significantly reduced remittances, 
and no prospects for that being replaced very soon. Where is Pakistan going to go in terms of the viability of its of its economy uh, and and i don't think it's actually as scary an answer uh, as as many might suspect but i want you to answer that first and then i'll pose my my theory thank you musharraf i think we need to look at two sides when we look at exports uh, if you look at the current structure of our exports I totally agree with you that demand there will be very little of scaling up that side. So we lost you. you we lost you there, uh, Arun Sal. <clears throat> I don't know. I think it might be too much pressure on internet or the Zoom is not working. Can you hear me now? Yes, loud and clear now. Okay. So what I'm trying to say is there are two sides to the equation. Number one is that we need to just imagine a world post now. So we will see huge demand impression. And Pakistan over the past 30 years has not done two things uh, in extent. Number one, we have not diversified the product mix. We have not added value. And we have relied on only one to two large trading partners. Now, our trading partners will be rebuilding their economies. And if you look at the mix of industries, which will actually slow down textile uh, uh, apparel is on top. So in the current structure, I will be less hopeful on Pakistan's side, and I actually see it contracting and coming way below 20 billion mark within 20. Uh, the positive side is that with the pressures on Western economies to rebuild and the in uh, can open up new markets for Pakistan exports. Uh, can you hear me? Gee, I can, but we're still getting we're still getting a few a few words are sort of uh, disappearing. So I'm able to follow the conversation, Fussy. Um, I can follow it. We can infer what you're saying at certain okay. points. So let me try and you know put the focus. So what I'm trying to say is, in any case, Pakistan had to diversify its the buy. So it look at the region. Uh, big boy. Okay, uh, Arun sorry. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pause the recording. Okay, so now looking at Pakistan's, you know, export side, uh, we need to look at both sides. Number one is the current structure of exports, where we have never, you know, invested in value addition, we have never diversified our markets and our 60% exports are textile based. What I see at the moment is the demand contraction in our major buyers in the EU and the US that you know textile will suffer in a big way because our exports are not apparel and they are you know low value added things. So I see a decline in exports very clearly and it will go this year below 20 billion mark. At the same time, what's happening is that lots of developed countries will be focusing on rebuilding their industries, particularly Italy, you know, the uh, France, UK, and the US. 
So lots of things, this region which it imports, particularly the food items and agriculture-based food items, there will be a shortage of that side. So if Pakistan positions itself well, so that I see an opportunity that if we invest in the agriculture sector at this point in time, but mind you, what will happen is that when you change your uh, priorities, this, some people will die. And that's a political decision of the government that what when, priority... Wait, wait Harim sahab, when you say some people will die, do you mean ke matlab, matlab actually die or you mean that some very, some, industry uncles, some very rich uncles will make a lot of noise and there'll be a lot of talk shows with, with specific guests and they'll ask them sweetheart softball questions. Which kind of dying are we talking about? Okay, now, now it's a question of political economy. There is a patronage-based industry which has thrived and survived for years and years, have not added to our foreign exchange much, but they have thrived themselves. Now, this is the time that a political government should stand up and say, no more subsidies, I want competitive products, we want to reposition ourselves, and we need to actually uh, invest in growth-oriented sectors. Now, I don't see that happening in the short term because I do see a clear elite capture in our institutions and in our political institutions. And their influence is huge. And they will make lots of noise. They will scare you. But this is the time of leadership to come out that it's an unprecedented situation. We don't afford it. And guys, these are the three winners for next three years if this country has to sustain economically and socially and even from the national security angle. So I would actually see that debate going towards that side, that which, what kind of Pakistan will be competitive when we imagine a post-COVID-19 scenario uh, uh, you know, across us. Second point is that I see no alternative for Pakistan unless we look at the markets in Asia. Because these are the markets which were growing and they have the reserves. I actually see the rich man's market in the West and the traditional markets, uh, uh, you know, not only contracting, but not being sympathetic towards, you know, developing world and Pakistan. For instance, GSP plus. Why would EU give you GSP plus when, you know, at the moment they are threatened of their own organizational existence at this point in time? So I think this kind of thinking should start coming in debate that Pakistan, what kind of Pakistan, what kind of new partners, and what will we be selling? Then, you know, some planning can be done. If you do business, what it's been going on for years and years, I think the shock could be much more serious than what we can absorb. So just to track back to something you just said, um, in terms of, let's say, the desire to make real deep structural reforms that create an economy that works for all rather than some. In this case, we've seen recently, you've had the sugar and wheat report come out. And the argument is still circling around whether it was price gouging, whether it was a form of corruption. But on the structural element, that still hasn't come to the forefront. Do you actually think that you know this articulated need will actually be followed up in these circumstances? Listen, in my opinion, the argument is very straightforward. An industry which cannot 
export anything on its own to me it's not competitive now you need to look at it can you make it competitive for instance will pakistan ever export a car my answer is no will pakistan export sugar without subsidy my answer at the moment is no so we need to put a yardstick very clearly if your product is not competitive you don't have a competitive advantage let it let let some people die frankly speaking people meaning the industries that's how you will bring the new winners in the game which could be it led which could be food led which could be other things if you create incentives it's called financial repression that how you shift the financial resources uh, from some sweethearts uh, to uh, the new friends and that is where the test of the political government is because currently the structure of political party is heavily influenced uh, by these elites so so we've talked uh, i mean this is a fascinating topic and uh, i mean we could do maybe an entire season of how to pakistan just on sugar Uh, just because I'm a sweet guy, and and I love, <laughs> I love sweetness. Um, and I know Fussy is not entirely averse to sweetness either. It's one of the few <laughs> things on which he and I agree. But but you've mentioned people dying a couple of times, and and just to clarify for the listeners, that has meant specifically the the death of uh, bloated, inefficient industries, <coughs> and and rich people. I also loved a term that you used and which I think will be the title of this episode if that's okay with you which is cowardly capitalism or coward capitalist capitalism um or coward capital actually um but 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 one of the uh, speaking of cowards and and people dying uh there's a lot that is happening on the India Pakistan well actually it's on the line of control Uh, but it could easily spin uh, far beyond that and onto the border and i was uh, lucky enough to have seen various not seen but discussed previous uh, drafts of the policy brief that you recently published for jinnah institute on kind of the regional picture and indo-pak relations and you framed that within the covid context and obviously we'll we'll share a, a link to that uh, when we publish the the episode but do you want to just give us a quick rundown of what your core thesis there is because uh, i'd like to challenge it once once you've had a chance to explain what it is no i think you should challenge it but my thesis is that if you think about this region rationally uh, the magnitude so i'd like to challenge you right there <laughs> <laughs> i let me finish no this is okay. basically yeah. uh, an unprecedented time uh the un secretary general is saying that the fragile and conflict linked regions will suffer the most and i agree with him but that is the time that basically it should be a wake up call for lots of people uh, about the way we have set our priorities so what i am arguing here is that if you have allocated all the resources to populist interventions projects defense contracts and have spent very little on human development in a region which is very populous and also has lots of young people then it is actually a strategic and national security argument for you what happens if god forbids your military or your establishment or your bureaucracy uh, they are caught in a pandemic how would you run the state 
So what I'm trying to say is that you need to uh, uh, refocus uh, uh, on human development in this region. And the diplomacy uh, uh, should be more flexible. I was actually disappointed uh, when Pakistan recently did not join uh, uh, the telecon on trade, which was a regional thing because it was not done under SAC. I think Pakistan should join that because the uncertainty in our traditional markets is very high. You just cannot keep on taking the old position. So that's my thesis. Now, that's a rational way of looking at it. It's such a big external shock and it will wake people up. At the same time, if you read my paper, uh, I, uh, I have argued that the biggest challenge here is that the rigidity of our old school is so much uh, uh, you know, stronger that to challenge that, uh, you will not be able to find the drivers who could really influence because particularly a national community would be busy rebuilding their own stuff. So there are two sides of the coin. So there could be uh, a thought leadership given that guys, things have changed. If you need to survive, look what has happened. Look what could have happened. That you basically start dealing like responsible neighbors. So that's all I'm arguing, Musharraf, in my note. If I could just go back, and I know that you used the phrase "people will need to die" as um, you know, it's as a you know, just as a phrase regarding big business in some ways, but. In terms of like what the federal government has been messaging at, at one level in sort of its discourse with the public. And if I could paraphrase it, and this is a real challenge I think policymakers around the world face, is the idea that if you have suppressive measures to contain the disease, people stay at home and in a developing country like this, you could have hunger, you could have uh, severe financial issues and people would die because of that, uh, then opening the economy would necessitate a certain degree of spread of the disease and in that way also maybe having people die. Like when you look at that particular framing where it becomes somewhat as a binary between the economy and health, I mean, what's a more nuanced take on that? Uh, firstly, in my opinion, you know, people are not looking at the dependence of our, you know, whole economy uh, on a healthy uh, uh, and also somewhat trained labor force. <clears throat> now, we do not have, uh, the training takes longer, but the health side is extremely critical. So no matter how rich I am, how, how, you know, the industry can bring in some kind of automation. But the services sector and the agriculture sector is going to need people. So this is where I'm trying to say that we basically overemphasize on the current uh, shape of industry. And at this point in time, half of that industry is not competitive and have basically uh, grown out of patronage, state patronage. So what I'm trying to say is that this is the time for actually investing in new kind of industry with relative in the investments in human development and also research so that we can diversify our industrial base. The term die I'm using is that somebody who has not started walking on its own feet in the past 70 years, you basically said the guys, perhaps you don't want to walk. Why did you sit at home and watch television? I'm not going to patronize you or subsidize you anymore. And case in point is sugar. Today I can buy 
uh, sugar 20% cheaper than what's available here from Chile. So why am I subsidizing this group here? So that's what I mean. Now, banking sector, for instance, we have had the highest spreads in Asia for years and years and years. By spread, I mean is the cost at which they borrow money from public and the cost at which they lend. So it's about 7% spread they have been enjoying. Now, at this point in time, if we are not cutting down the interest rate, that the banking sector will go down. I think they have enough reserves to take a shock for a year or so. So you can create longer term you know, incentives for these kind of businesses who have extracted money from the poor people and have lent to the rich people. Uh, you know, this is what my argument is. I might be sounding quite a bit uh, on the left side at this point in time, but I'm very worried about uh, the well-being of two sectors, which is agriculture and services sector. I, I never thought in, in many, like, seriously, this is a great betrayal, right, uh, Harun Saab? Because on, on this, in this conversation, Fussy is supposed to be to the left of me, and I'm supposed to be to the right of uh, Fussy, and our guest is supposed to be in the center. But it, it, uh, it sounds like for the first time, I think since I've known you, you might be slightly more left uh, than, than even I am, and certainly the, I can hear Fussy chuckling with joy and happiness. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I want to go back. So I think what, the train of thought that I wanted uh, to, to explore a little bit further, um, and I think these things are connected. See, Harun Sab, you're advocating kind of a rational um, approach, both domestically. Um, so, so the question there is, can we be rational enough to stop giving sweetheart deals and affirmative action policies to people who are singularly the wealthiest and most powerful uh, men and families in the country. And uh, concurrently, you're also saying that, can we be rational and engage with India? So, I mean, the example of the trade call is one, there was a, there was a call with, uh, with the health, uh, with, the, with the leadership of SARC, to which Pakistan only sent uh, Dr. Zafar Mirza, that was the COVID call that Modi had, uh, had elected to, to a grandstand on. And I guess my argument or my, my worry, I, I don't think I even have an argument. I, I only have a, a worry. And that is that as rational as you want to be, I mean, you talked about thought leadership. You and I have been engaged in the wider community of, of uh, people that have been advocating for regional connectivity. Uh, I've learned most of what I know about this from you. Uh, I basically call you, uh, make notes, and then I go and re re regurgitate whatever I've heard at various conferences <laughs> and events uh, for many years now. And, uh, but I also think that both of us and many, many, many other friends and colleagues uh, and fellow travelers in Pakistan in particular have seen a very dramatic and profound change in the way that India behaves on the international stage and particularly with respect to Pakistan. So no matter how reasonable and how bold our thought leadership here in Pakistan is, you're dealing with a country that in the midst of the COVID crisis is shelling constantly uh, as far as uh, the line of control is concerned. How do you propose we deal with, with this kind of irrational new beast in India? 
if you look at my policy note for Jinnah Institute, what I have argued is that rationality uh, will cannot be leveraged bilaterally. Now, what I am arguing is that the regional stakes in these two countries are rising. And if you look at India and China trade, it's almost touching $100 billion. The same China is investing, you know, 60, 70 billion in Pakistan over the next few years. So the stakes of China in both countries are very high. Uh, my argument is that when the West slows down, so India's dependence on Chinese market will further rise. And India would also like, you know, a share of Pakistani market. And if the dialogue comes with the people who have stakes like Saudi Arabia, uh, like China and others, then perhaps a window might open. Bilaterally, I totally agree with you uh, that at this point in time, I don't see a rational response coming from our neighbor. What, what, do you, uh, one, what are your thoughts on this, Fussy? Actually, I had another question in mind. I just wanted to ask is like with all this thought leadership and this idea that we have to rethink uh, things and how we, uh, you know, structure the economy. persistent HR issues hai, iska kya uh, uh, Now there are two ways. Looking at Harun sahab, I should warn you that Fussy is a is a troublemaker as well. I'm I'm just letting you know. <laughs> Actually, uh, Fussy's question is pertinent. Like. You know, uh, having spent a year with these guys, yeah. <laughs> now at one level, I have lots of sympathy because if you look at the ruling party, there are lots of first timers in the game. Okay. So I would give them, you know, and they came in and they had no experience and they were trying to, you know, oh, oh, grapple with that situation. Uh, my worry is more that the structure of our bureaucracy has gone so weak that they have practically stopped thinking. Uh, Sir, so you're on have, the same page. So, so you're on the same page as Jahangir Khan Tareen on this one. <laughs> well, Jahangir Khan Tareen has followed me, by the way. Uh, okay. Correct, correct. So correct. Yeah. historically, if you know him, he has used that bureaucracy very smartly for yes, years. Yes, of course, which is why I raised the question. <laughs> so what I'm trying to say is that at this point in time, the countries who have been in this situation rather than fixing, uh, you know, the HR issues, as Fasi has mentioned, you need to first set your priorities based on some evidence, and then you need to insulate those priorities for the traditional system. In the traditional system, it has never worked, it will not work. So that is the message, basically, that cost me my job. That is the message, basically, we need to continuously giving that you cannot really... Uh, do business if you don't have the qualification to do it and you need to bring in people and you need to pay them and you need to compensate them and you need to give them space so uh, so bureaucracy in its current structure will not do it now in diplomacy i'll i'll quote an example that i was the first person who went to the current foreign minister and introduced the term economic diplomacy but to be very honest uh, within weeks uh, the structure is such that it became a buzzword and everybody tried to capture more resources that we are going to do it. 
rather than understanding what is to be done. So I have little hope in the current structures as I see. But if the top leadership decides to bring some champions and give them power, I think things can move. I think that that's the entry point for for a question that Fussy I think had uh, when we were when we were planning the episode. Fussy. will you go? Well, I'll be very honest. I have three conditions, and I can publicly <laughs> state that. My first condition is that rather than having a federal secretary and two additional secretaries, I want some investment bankers. Uh, my uh, second condition is that I cannot, you know, report to multiple bosses and people who second guess professionals all the time. And my third is that please set some policy priorities. Unless and until any state does that, it's you, or a Nobel laureate, nobody can deliver if the system is such. So I think, you know, it's interesting, uh, and I, thank you for being so, so straightforward and upfront with that. I think uh, these are things that I think people know, but they aren't articulated as clearly as, as you just articulated them. I don't tell, you know, you have not been the only uh, victim of, uh, uh, of, of, of the system in, in the last uh, year, year and a half, we've seen I would say, you know, Saqib Shirani was probably the first and he was the very early victim. And then you had, uh, I think Asad Umar was a victim pretty much of the same thing. I think we've had a couple of bureaucrats who, who think, a couple of bureaucrats who think slightly differently, who uh, also uh, were victims. And then actually, I think Hamad Azhar and his recent uh, shift, although I'm told that, that I'm wrong and that in fact, this is a, this is a promotion. I, I just don't see how uh, that that is the case. But regardless, uh, it's clear that it's it's a system wide issue. It's not a personality based issue, and the conditions that you've just identified uh, are basically, uh, if I had to summarize them in one condition, it would be that the Supreme Court's imposition of a serving grade twenty two officer as the principal accounting officer for every single division is basically hampering Pakistan from actually getting anything done. Would that be, would that be an accurate uh, phraseology or do you think that's too risky to say? No, I think it's a fair argument, but it's like principal accounting officer. If you look at bureaucracy, it does two things uh, uh, everywhere in the world. It does two things. Number one is that they would like to maximize their budgets and they will be extremely secretive uh, and not talking to people. Now, what's happening is it's fine as long as you know you are delivering. But if you're not delivering and you are continuously maximizing power uh, uh, through collusion and through uh, uh, incompetence, then it becomes very dangerous. So my my take here is that at this point in time, you actually need. If you recall, when you worked in DFID uh, in the UK. Uh, uh, Suma Chakrabarti was 42 when he became a permanent secretary. That's right. Yep. And so Manush, Manush, uh, Manush was also, I don't think she was more than 46 or 47. Manush. So Manush Nehmat Shafiq was 36 when she was vice president in the World Bank. Right. So uh, what I'm arguing is that in the current structure, it is not the competence 
so they know it so the incentive structure is such that it is no matter what you do you're not going to get promoted unless and until you know you come into a crony partnership now to break that structure it might take years that's what i'm trying to say that you need to take out certain things and give it to by the way you know this is an argument this is a discussion i have with mr jangit tarin several months back and tried to explain to him when he was you know uh, 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 the deputy prime minister de facto uh, at that time but at that point in time uh, 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 you know he did not take it forward now perhaps either he has realized when he has been you know come under pressure but to be very honest there is nothing wrong in it you're not threatening them all you are trying to say is that you know uh, you guys just do your day job but for my priorities i need a different a team now that is a decision which is a political decision no bureaucrat will ever take it you know sure and uh, things might work but currently you know sitting uh, uh, in principal accounting officer somebody who jealously controls and micromanages and uses it for patronage uh, uh, you know this machine has not delivered for years so you don't need much evidence that it will start delivering uh fussy if, if you allow me i just want to take this a little bit further because i think it's really relevant in the context of covid um 19 arun sahab you know we we both have witnessed over the last i would say the last 15 years have been really interesting from a disaster and crisis perspective and and again i've shared this thesis with you but uh, you know i've come to believe that governance in pakistan is crisis governance and what that means is that when there is a serious crisis uh, pakistan is as sophisticated and as capable as any country on the planet and the reason it is able to pull that off whether it's the 2005 earthquake it's the 2009 idp crisis uh, from malakan division especially into mardan but throughout the country soabi and mardan uh, bore the brunt of that one or it's the 2010 floods or it's the 2014 15 and 16 uh, temporary displacement uh, of pakistanis uh, from the uh, tribal uh, districts into uh, you know again into the settled districts but far beyond in each one of those cases one of the absolute certainties that that we knew we could count on was the role of the principal accounting officer minus 20 years so your assistant commissioners and deputy commissioners the role that they play and the manner in which they're able to with very very limited resources the manner in which they're able to basically fend off uh, the apocalyptic levels of crisis that that often seem to be the ones uh, coming to a fore you know that makes the conversation more complex i think one of the challenges in having a nuanced conversation about the bureaucracy is that when a dc hears a conversation about you know his seniors he feels like he must leap into action but i, I think that's actually problematic because the argument that you're making or that i'm making or anybody that's demanding reform is making is not that bureaucrats are bad but that the specific role of bureaucrats when they become the chief operating or chief executive officers de facto of divisions and ministries that that kind of power is unhelpful to the objectives of the republic am i am i being too kind or or is there something there harun sir no i think musharraf you have studied it in depth but my take is that 
when somebody reaches that level, uh, he or she is already looking forward to their retirement. So the mindset actually, because you become a federal secretary uh, normally once you have crossed the age limit of 55, uh, you know, or even more. So the mindset for a deputy commissioner or assistant commissioner who has come in, it has lots of energy, lots of things to look forward to. So I think the incentive is to do something and show something. That guy is just, you know, passing a day uh, 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 safely uh, and will not take any risks. So that that's how in simplistic terms I would see. I have lots of hope, you know, among the young people and the young officers. But what will happen is that unless and until, you know, you devolve the power and give them the authority to deliver, uh, it will become more and more difficult for this country because it's a complex country. And we keep on creating parallel structures uh, 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 at the level. And I give you example uh, what I'm seeing today. Uh, I still don't see NDMA fully, you know, empowered in this particular crisis. So there were multiple players and now they have uh, 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 taken some coordinated shape after almost a month. Otherwise, you know, everybody was trying to do things with all good intention. But this is where I'm trying to say that you've got to have uh, uh, some institutions where delegated powers are and where, where you know, you can build some kind of capacity to do things. The current structure, and on a lighter tone, when I was chairman board of investment, uh, without naming, uh, I was very fortunate because it was the early days and I flew with the prime minister to all five countries he visited. Uh, one head of state basically committed, you know, a significant amount of investment in Pakistan. But then he publicly said that my people are saying that if you give it to your bureaucracy, it will not happen. That's pretty, that, that's pretty stunning as, as far as... Uh, you know, goes. and this basically he said in the presence of our prime minister. So I'm trying to say is that it's not you and I who's talking. Uh, there are lots of people who have dealt with our bureaucracy and they genuinely see that the current incentive structure basically is not conducive, not modern at all to actually deal with the rest of the world. So you just take, give me an example that if you put a current ministerial structure, be it province or the federation, have we you know, done one large transaction successfully in the past 10, 15 years. Uh, well, you would be in a better position to answer that. But, but before you do, I guess the, the, the counter question, Harun Saab, really is going back to the current crisis, is that I think that the nature of this crisis, and it's not just me, I mean, I think this is the consensus, is that it's a multifarious and potentially multi-year crisis. So given that your thesis, uh, which, which I subscribe to, which is that the, the state doesn't have the capacity to deal with crises per se, and it especially doesn't have the capacity to deal with uh, you know, ex an exacerbated or elongated crisis, what does that mean in terms of Pakistan's preparation and Pakistan's response to COVID-19? Because the caveat to all this is that so far, actually, my argument would be that Pakistan's response to COVID-19 has been remarkably uh, timely. 
uh, and wise uh, in terms, and I can identify specific instances, but, but I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Thank you, Pakistan's response. Pakistan has taken responsibility. CEO of the country is leading it. And our response hasn't been bad. And we were a bit lucky that, you know, it came a little late here. We had some institutions of social protection. So we are leveraging it well. Thank you, Joe. Something which is good, we must acknowledge. But we are, uh, again, I'm not criticizing that capacity is not a criticism. Uh, it is basically that the world has moved on and we have not invested in the skill set and the ways of working the way the rest of the world does. So that is where I think it is, you know, lots of people take it as that in Urdu term, as if we are saying, that's not the issue at all. The institutional capacity is totally different thing as compared to, you know, not knowing how to do things. Uh, to answer your question, Pakistan's response, but Musharraf, the, this crisis uh, will have a cascading uh, impact. Uh, it will be mini and mega crises which will be emerging. For instance, uh, I see bankruptcies, I see sovereign defaults, I see massive you know, joblessness. In addition to the health and the you know, uh, 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 fatal nature, of this particular pandemic. Now the resources which will be needed to tackle this kind of things, what government at the moment is doing perhaps can last for another five to six months. But where would those research resources come from? I, I actually pose a question to both of you. When the rest of the world will be dealing with their own crises, Go ahead, Fasil. So, I, mean, I think that one was for you. <laughs> uh, so I just thought that, you know, I mean, one of the things that the prime minister said today, which is making somewhat of a generic appeal for debt relief and framing it as a, you know, worldwide issue of the developing world. I'm just wondering is, uh, given your experience of working uh, in this sector and with a lot of these institutions, is there any... Uh, appetite for potentially, you know, suspending payments for two years or so, putting a freeze on that, because that would at least allow some degree of fiscal space to be open uh, for us to mount a response. Thank you. For fiscal space, you don't need dollars necessarily because only you need to import ventilators. Actually, we should be making ventilators here. Uh, my experience is that if we are going for debt relief, we should go for bilateral debt relief first because that is less complex and that will test the waters. By bilateral is because I was involved in that. We have debt from China. We have debt from Saudi Arabia. We have debt from UAE. We have debt from Qatar. So why don't we test that debt relief first? Because that's the easier one. If we can have some success because multilateral debt relief is complex and Pakistan, uh, mind you, is not uh, listed among the poorest countries which are purely working on IDA credit, which is the cheapest resources. We have a blended credit facility. <laughs> and debt relief is a very long, painful process. The transaction cost will be very high. My take is that we need to uh, raise domestic resources by doing three things. 
number one is that we need to cut down the size of the state and leave certain activities and create some fiscal space. Uh, number two is that we need to come up with a value proposition for the rich banks and industry that guys, if you sacrifice for next two years, this is an incentive package we are giving you for the next five years. But for two years, if you are earning a billion dollars a year, bring down to you know 50 million or 5 million and give us more money in terms of a one-time tax. But we will reward you because business, it will not work one-sided. But we are sitting on lots of assets which we are not at all leveraging, particularly land, uh, state-owned enterprises. This is the time to get rid of it and basically leverage those for public works because let me assure you that now the jobless people will not get jobs in private sector. Private sector will hold on to their money. It is the public welfare programs of the state which will employ the poor. And for that, you need resources, indigenous, local Pakistan currency resources. That's how I look at the situation. I don't see at this point in time a multilateral debt relief for Pakistan. Yes, what can happen is, which I have also suggested, that you change the conditionalities of IMF. Go to them. A, you say that you enhance the period of the program. But also put some conditions if Pakistan invests X billion uh, uh, rupees in health sector or, you know, to deal with COVID, uh, that part, uh, you know, fund should basically wave off. We, are, we will not pay that back. Now, this kind of smart dealing uh, uh, is very much on the cards. I don't see IMF and the World Bank will not listen to it. So the conditions could be that rather than increasing the tax revenue, uh, increase the health sector spending. Uh, this is how I see dealing with their national system. Well, thank you, Harun Saab. It's been incredibly illuminating. Uh, you've been extremely clear and forthright in what you've been saying. So, I mean, just before we close, any last things you want to say that uh, maybe we've left out in our discussion? No, my message, I will repeat that we, we, are, we have been fortunate so far in terms of the impact of the crisis. Uh, we need to very carefully see how to manage the opening of the different sectors uh, under the lockdown situation. But at the same time, I think we need to let the government respond to the crisis but reach out to people for the kind of things I've been talking, which is financing, which is dealing with other crises, insurance companies going down, and basically looking at Pakistan's real potential, because I don't see this crisis only economic and health, because it can trigger to far more serious things uh, for many countries uh, uh, in the coming days and months and weeks. Okay, well, thank you so much for that. And we'll bring the program to a close. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. Uh, Good luck and yeah. stay I, safe. I hope you are uh, staying at home. Well, we, we did this through Zoom principally because of the uh, uh, physical distancing sort of uh, sentiment that, uh, that both Fassi and I... No, prayers for everybody. To. And I genuinely think that we should 
uh, while the intensity is high, use this opportunity to take some serious decisions of structural nature. But then, you know, uh, 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 it is up to the leadership if they feel that way. Well, I think that uh, if uh, if we listen and heed your advice, our way with saying things so sweetly, but having a huge oh. undercurrent of this is, uh, way behind it. <laughs> well, this is the South Punjab touch, uh, but we'll leave that for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we will uh, we will have to hope uh, that uh, advice like that. Uh, is heated, and that is our only path to, inshallah, continued not just survival but thrival. So, on that uh, note, this is Musharraf Zedi. Fasim, Fasim Zakir signing off. I should have made you leave your feet. If I'd have known.